Hi folks, a very quick announcement before we get started on the episode this week. And that is a huge thank you to Katie Unicorn Stewart. I don't know if your middle name really is Unicorn. If it is, that is an awesome name. So the fabulous Katie Unicorn Stewart gave us a recent review on Apple Podcasts about the recent Governance Summit summary. So five stars for Take On Board, she says. Loved the recent Governance Summit summary podcasts. Super useful. Katie, happy to help. Thank you so much. And thanks for taking the time to do a review. So a little prompt for others that might be listening. I love it when I get reviews and you might get read out on the pod as well. So get in there and work out how to do ratings and reviews and let me know what you think of the pod. All right, on with the show. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast. Being on a board can be an incredibly valuable, interesting and exciting experience. Yet it can also be lonely, challenging and, let's face it, pretty hard. So here at Take On Board, I'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you navigate your way onto a board, onto your next board and to build your governance wisdom. Now, on with the show. Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking with Noreen Young about whether Australia's boards reflect its makeup, spoiler alert, I'm guessing no, and how you can meld Indigenous governance with mainstream governance. Before we start that discussion, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record today. For me, that's the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I'd like to pay my respects to Elders past and present. I acknowledge their continuing connection to land, to waters, to culture, and that this land was never ceded. I support the Uluru Statement from the Heart, and I encourage others in the Take On Board community to do the same. Now, let me introduce Noreen. Professor Noreen Young is on the boards of Black Dance, Per Capita, Evolve Housing, and she's previously been on the boards of South Cares, Diversity Arts Australia, and Indigenous Business Australia. She's also on the Indigenous Advisory Group of National Australia Bank and the Aboriginal Advisory Group of Insurance Australia Group. She's one of Australia's leading and most respected workplace diversity practitioners and thinkers. Influenced by her Indigenous and culturally diverse heritages, Noreen has made a major contribution to awareness and understanding of diversity in Australian business and workplaces and in the wider community. Prior to her work in diversity, Noreen was a trade union official, that's where I met her, and has led two influential and successful diversity peak bodies, the Diversity Council of Australia and the New South Wales Working Women's Centre. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Noreen. Yama, how are you? How are you? Oh, I am awesome because I'm having a chat to you. We haven't done this for a long, long time. I know. I love how the old connections come back to the fore. So thank you. Thanks for being open to the call and for catching up in what has been decades. (laughs) Yeah. So, Noreen, before we talk about how we meld Indigenous governance with mainstream governance, as always, I would love to dig a little bit deeper about you. Tell me, where were your parents born and do you know where your ancestors are from? I do, and it kind of makes... I I suppose all of that, my background has made me love Australian diversity and and be a diversity practitioner. So both my parents were born in Sydney. On my father's side, I have what 
most people would think, oh, wow, that's so diverse, but I think really quite typical of our generation in that I've got a lot of diversity in my background. So two of my great-grandfathers, one was from Scotland and he was my grandmother's father and my grandfather's father was from Kalmar in Sweden and he jumped ship. So we've, over the last 20 years, taken great delight in saying, yep, we're illegal. They were both coal lumpers on the Sydney waterfront who took part in the 1917 general strike and found work hard to get afterwards. And I don't know if you know what coal lumpers do, but they carried the coal on their backs on the waterfront. And so I think they came here as progressives, both of them. And, you know, my great-grandfather, who was the seafarer from unionised cultures and environments in Sweden and Scotland. And so I was born on that side into the organised working class and progressive movement, and I'm very grateful for that. And we had a Swedish last name until halfway through last century and they changed it from Jungren to Young and that really informed our family and how we viewed prejudice and discrimination, I suppose, because there was a lot directed at our family. My grandfather, Dutchy Young, was a trade union official for 30 years and I look back and he was probably the first cowled trade union official, which I find really interesting. So that's on dad's side. On mum's side, mum was born in Sydney. Her grandmother was born in Redfern. We're not sure if she was Gadigal. We're pretty, she was Eora of the Eora people, so Aboriginal people of the Sydney Basin. We know that she was in Randwick Destitute Children's Home with three siblings. We've only just found out about a boy one but whose names we don't know and they were removed from their parents. One was sent to a property up in Warren, grew up believing she was a Wiradjuri woman and I only know this because I met her descendants some years ago at a conference. So we're Aboriginal descendants on that side. On my mother's other side, on her father's side, My great-grandfathers came from England and they were Jewish. They came from York. He converted when he was 14. So there's been a whole lot of assimilationism in our family and a whole lot of loss of identity due to Australian assimilationism and, and the way that the colony was developed. So that's really, I think, influenced all of us as siblings And my partner, of course, is Irish-Australian through and through. And so our kids take great delight in identifying as Koree, Irish, Swedish-Australians. Oh, my God, amazing. I I feel like, Noreen, even though we first met decades ago, I've already learned more about you in the conversation before we ever got and now in this part. So people who listen to this podcast may have already heard me say this, but my great-grandfather, Sven Svensson, jumped ship from the Danish Merchant Navy whilst in Fremantle, and that's how the Svensson side of the family came to Australia. And like you, and my mother arrived as a Jewish refugee, so in, in the late 30s. It's much most Australians, and there's a whole lot of diversity, I think. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Oh. Yeah. But the Swedes and the Dane and seafarers, 
There's a lot of those. Arnie Pat Anderson. Ah, right. Swedish great-grandfather, Christina Keneally. Her Australian side, Swedish great-grandfather. She's actually made contact with the Swedes. I've met one of them um, at her swearing-in, actually. There was one of the Swedish cousins. And so it's not a huge component of immigration, but there's not. There's quite a few of us. Trent Keir. Yeah. Danish. Yeah. There you go. Oh, my goodness. So then there's lots of different cultural ancestry there. Where do you feel like your place or your home is? Oh, I'm very connected to Gadigal. So I should have said I'm sitting on Gadigal and that's our traditional lands if anyone could claim they were the traditional owners of Gadigal. And because then the Swedes and the Scots, when they came here, lived in Millers Point, so on the harbour, we're very connected to the Sydney waterfront. And then I grew up on Durrawal, so down at Cronulla, very privileged to have there on Durrawal on that. It's magnificent. So I feel very connected to Gadigal and that's where our family always obviously lived here and then absorbed out into the Australian working class into the up onto a Wabakal and around Newcastle and and then onto Durrawal. And I love Sydney. I think the ancestors have made it a welcoming, diverse place in in our family we were always taught internationalism embracing of everybody respect for other cultures and of course on that side of the family respect for aboriginal culture and aboriginal people and the ownership of the land by aboriginal people on mum's side they were very fearful people about anything really leaving the house my grandmother was dark skinned so they were very scared about their identity I consider myself really privileged but there was a lot of poverty in our family and a lot of hardship so work is a privilege in our family and the career I've been able to have is really a a credit to public education. Honorine I could wade around in this story for the whole time, but I'm also really keen to talk about the topic. So I'm going to segue us there. You know, do Australia's boards reflect its makeup and how can we meld Indigenous governance with mainstream governance? Where should we start? Okay, so I spent the women on boards period of Australian feminism, the late Anna McPhee, who was my good friend, she was a conservative liberal and I'm not, and she used to refer to it as their human, once they discovered their human right to sit on a board, which I always thought was very entertaining. That period of Australian feminism, I think I was one of the only people who spoke out on it because I didn't consider it an appropriate thing to be considered a human rights issue. I had a view and I hold on to this and, and would like to hear it promoted more that if we were going to put all of these public resources, the resources of the Human Rights Commission, blah, 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 into women on boards, we needed to have some expectation of what they're going to deliver. Mm. So we can't just say 
it's a good thing for women to be on boards regardless of who they are and what their beliefs might be. If we're going to promote women onto boards, we want them to deliver pay equity. They have a responsibility to deliver flexible workplaces, to deliver equitous workplaces for women and gender diverse people and people from culturally diverse backgrounds. So I think we went about all of that ass up. Um, sorry, probably shouldn't have said that, but went about it in a way that was just about the principle and didn't talk about any of the fundamentals. And that period of Australian feminism meant that we weren't even allowed to talk about multiculturalism, right? So I kind of get irritated because in the period before that, when, for example, I was running the Working Women's Centre, we did talk about multiculturalism and there was some acknowledgement of intersectionality. But during that period of the absolute whiteification of Australian feminism and the focus on the C-suite and women on boards, there was no discussion or recognition of intersectionality, which, you know, drove people spare. And I think that culturally diverse people and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people were very much othered. Class wasn't allowed to be mentioned. It was very difficult. So we're now in a policy environment from what I can observe where we are allowed to talk about those things. We are allowed to talk about our intersectional identities. I have heaps, for example, and I think lots of Australians do. I think lots of Indigenous Australians do. And particularly Sydney, I, I don't know much as much about Melbourne, but lots of mob here are very diverse. So I think we're in a policy environment where we can now name that Australian boards really aren't very diverse, they're pathetic, and we need to talk in a policy sense about how we change that but what we want to see represented. And my view is obviously... I'm going to say this, that the broad gamut of the Australian community in terms of diversity should be represented, and that includes class. So class as diversity dimension, DCA are talking about it, bless. I had Lisa and Nice on the podcast last year talking about the Class at Work report and what that meant for boards. She's a bit cool, isn't she? And she succeeded me, so I can honestly say that she is a very excellent woman and one of the reasons I was very happy for her to succeed me is that she's from the same class background as mine. She's working class from the Sutherland Shire. And so DCA talking about it, I'll, I'll be talking about it a lot more this year and we need to start naming class. I found that last period of the human right to sit on a board period of Australian feminism very difficult in terms of its refusal to acknowledge class and its motivation came from a place of utter and absolute privilege. Absolutely. I mean, I could not agree more. It set us back a really long time and I did my usual, Helia, as you know, and said it and copped a lot of crap. But, you know, I've never regretted it and everyone's and starting to think about it. and. There was a lot of very ally-type white middle-class feminists and they weren't even allowed, they weren't even given permission to talk about it. So we're in a different policy environment and it's exciting and it's new and we've got to take advantage of it. So then if we think about, you know, Indigenous governance 
And I was interested when we, you know, we're talking about the topic and melding Indigenous governance with mainstream governance. Tell me more about what that means to you. So I have spent the last 20 years trying to explain to mainstream Australia around Indigenous people and work that Indigenous culture is not second-class white people. Indigenous culture is not inferior. It is not romantic. It is not... Oh, it's really funny. I was at a barbecue the other day and this woman started having this long to pontificating at great length on Indigenous family structures and relational cultures and sitting next to me and having this conversation as if I wasn't there kind of thing and, like, trying to break down those assumptions about who Indigenous people are and what Indigenous cultures are. And I think there are Indigenous governance experts like Michelle Deschamps and Robin Quiggan and Jason Glanville and all of the people who have worked so hard to formalise recognition of Indigenous government governance in Indigenous organisations. But I think one of the keys around the voice and the reset, I suppose, around how we can utilise Indigenous culture as the basis for how this place operates. So I'd like to see a lot more Indigenous people on boards who can share knowledge around Indigenous governance and bring Indigenous attributes around governance, around accountability, around community notions of accountability and decision-making to Australian boards. Oh, so much in there. So I'm hearing that Indigenous governance has that kind of element around community accountability or accountability and community accountability. Well, and I'm not an expert, but Mm. I've spent a long time listening to experts. What else would you see, you're noting you're not an expert, but what are the other elements that you see around Indigenous governance? I'd say really serious consideration of representation. I think the union movement wasn't that different, actually, in these terms. I think I was trained as a union official to take very seriously the the manner of your representation, accountability and who you represented and that you were there to represent them. You weren't about yourself. And I have observed over many years that Indigenous governance, that the framework around Indigenous governance is very similar. So it's about representation and genuine authenticity of representation and thinking about who you represent and how you do that and fundamentally why you do that rather than yourself. And the other thing about the whole women on boards debacle, I think, was that it was incredibly individualistic and was about oh, well, I deserve a place on the board, on a board. Well, yep, we all probably do, but some people can't even get enough to eat. So why do we want to be on boards? Well, I want to be on boards because I think I bring to them life experience, a value set, but really importantly, a whole lot of career experiences that have given me experience in how I think governance should operate. Yeah, so that connection to purpose. Yeah, yeah, 
And, you know, at some point you can meld that, and this isn't, I'm not saying this is an Indigenous governance touch point, that connection to purpose is really important. Absolutely. Interesting. So from your board experience, from the boards that you're on, what have you seen in terms of that melding or? Oh, okay. So Black Dance, well, Carla McGrath was the chair and we remade it. Dan Borsha is now the chair and it's just a pleasure to be on. And we set up a cultural council of elders to refer to around for everything we did we took our cultural governance and structures and obligation to implement that really seriously. We took our communication styles and general consensus approaches really seriously. We had to restructure, and I've done that a lot of times now as a CEO or a board director. We took our responsibility to restructure in a manner that befitted cultural governance standards really seriously. So I've absolutely loved that. South Care's a completely mainstream organisation, but with Indigenous employees and an Indigenous constituency and the leadership of that organisation, Nick Pappas, who's the chair of South's more like the larger club, and Blake Solly, who's the CEO, I've never seen respect for Indigenous people and cultures like those two and drawing on it and learning from it and just going with community and what community needed and needs. I'm not on that board anymore. So I've been very fortunate in working in both of those environments and learning from like Nick, like a rugby league dude, he's been a rugby league dude for a really long time and watching how he deals with things and learning so much from that. Oh, Noreen, so many wonderful things in this conversation and the time has flown by. I'm wondering what are the key things you want people to take away from the conversation that we've had today? Oh, that scratch most Australians and there's a lot of diversity. You know, your story's probably pretty similar to mine, except you don't have an Indigenous element and you're probably much more Jewish. That was the end when my great-grandfather converted when he was 14. That was the end of us being Jewish, which is pretty sad. That assimilationism robbed us all, I think, of so many cool things from respect for Indigenous people and culture to respect for other forms of diversity. Clearly nobody had it as bad as Indigenous people but other people had it pretty shit as well, that centering Indigenous voices and culture in this place would be really beneficial, doesn't matter how, long we, uh, how we look at it, that the new policy environment we're in lends itself to an examination and uh, an inclusion of Australian intersectionality, which is really unique and that's really cool, and that we need to work on board diversity. There's just a few things in there. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is there a resource you would like to share with the Take On Board community? Oh, Desert Island Discs. It's this, well, it's been a show for, I think, 70 years on the BBC and I reckon it's the best podcast going because they have all that. Now, do you want to hear some excellent Doris, as Blackfellas say, 
Did you ever watch, oh, you, I'm sure you did because we all did, did you ever read Bridget Jones's diary and watch the movie? Yes. Okay. So what's her name, Fielding, who wrote it, went out with a number of human rights barristers and guess who Mr Darcy is modelled on? Her ex-boyfriend, Keir Starmer. Oh, my goodness. I know, which I found out on uh, Desert Island Disc. Oh, I'm a big fan of Desert Island Disc. You find out, and the music's great, and I'm a bit of a music head, so it kind of reminds you to listen to all of the excellent music that we can access. Totally. Awesome. Yeah. All right. We will make, folks, we'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes. Okay, cool. Thanks, Julia. Oh, Noreen, thank you so much for being here, for sharing. And um, I look forward to catching up at some stage in person in Sydney and catching up on more. Okay. Thanks, mate. So that's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. Thank you so much for being here and being part of the Take On Board community. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together. So I invite you to join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group, an active group that helps, supports and cheer squads each other. Just search Take On Board in Facebook to find us. I'd really love it if you could also do some of the other podcast things. Share with someone you know who might get some value from our discussions. Subscribe if you haven't already. And, well, I also really love it when people rate and review. Thanks again for being part of the Take On Board community. Now go and put these tips, tricks and advice into action so you can be your best in the boardroom. 